Amen. Praise God. Well, good morning. If you'd open your Bibles to Psalm 34, that's where we're going to be today. Just open your Bible halfway to the middle. Halfway to the middle, that's a redundant statement. And go to Psalm 34 and you'll find it. So this is going to conclude our Summer Songs uh, series. We typically do something different in August to make it a little more flexible for different preachers to come in. Uh, and I had the joy of having some rest. Um, and now uh, it's going to be full throttle till Christmas. So here we go. But this is our last one in Summer Songs. And I picked Psalm 34 simply because I like it. That's the only reason. So um, you're welcome. The... Uh, Book of Psalms, so people that just understand, and I'm sure you know this, so you don't need to say, I know this. It's a book of songs. These are written, intended to be sung. And in his letter, Paul, writing to the Ephesians, uh, he encouraged us to sing often. He says, to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so we are encouraged, and we do as a church sing psalms. We have songs that are written that are pretty much just psalms with a little nice melody. We have hymns, which are often based on um, the psalms, and other songs which come from that, and, and sometimes are just new creations. And so these are songs that are intended to be sung. They're all very different, but they are all designed for worship. Now, uh, that's a little surprising. Uh, there are, as I said, 150 different songs. There are eight different types of songs in this book. Uh, there are kind of what they call royal songs, repentant songs, there are teaching songs, there are even lamenting songs in the the beauty of the songs and, the, and maybe the strangeness of them is that they, they run a range of emotions. And if you read these psalms, knowing that they are intended to be sung, knowing that they're intended to be worshipful, what you see is that God does not expect our worship to only come through songs that end really positively or, or just, woohoo, I love Jesus, everything's awesome. Okay, That's not how all the psalms end. Many do. Many talk about um, you know, bad things and then end with, but Lord is Lord and He will reign and all these things. But some just end with, life is terrible. The end. And that's it. And what I think it teaches us is that uh, our worship is supposed to run the range of emotions. And we are, as a people, uh, supposed to learn how to worship even through, through things that are sorrowful. Even through things that are difficult. And not always like, Everything is awesome in Jesus. Like, that's true. But sometimes we need to spend a little bit of time in sorrow and a little bit of time worshiping God through that sorrow. Now, uh, these songs were written by uh, several different people. In fact, I think there are uh, seven, seven different authors, uh, five individuals, two families, and then about half of them are ascribed to King David. And then there's about 50 that are just anonymous. Don't know who wrote them. Um, and so it typically in your Bible will indicate who wrote what. But the beauty of any song, and I am uh, probably the last person to be talking about songs because I can't play an instrument. Um, I'm just uh, horrible at identifying bands and music. and I, I don't know. You turn it on like, 
sounds good. Or you turn it off, like, I don't care. I, it doesn't, I'm just not very musical. Um, but I know, or I'm, I'm smart enough to know that usually the songs, at least the meaningful ones, they typically have stories behind them. Uh, and I'm not talking about like VH1 behind the music type of things, but there are stories that, that birth these songs and experiences that birth these songs. Um, and what was I going to say? I don't know. I just lost it. Where it goes. Woo, gone. Uh, oh, here we go. The Psalms, we never actually think about the stories behind those songs. Maybe you do. Um, you can kind of look at the cross-references and figure it out sometimes, but it's not often that we kind of go back and go, where did these songs come from in the Bible? Because they were written at different times during different events in the Old Testament. And so, Psalm 34, I'm going to, uh, I typically I start by reading it all. I'm not. I'm going to go through it piece by piece. But before we do, I want to give you the story behind it a little bit so you understand where it came from. Uh, the story, um, you don't need to read it, but you can maybe just remember it. It's out of 1 Samuel 21. And 1 Samuel is the book that talks about the first king of Israel, Saul, and then the next and probably greatest king of Israel, David. Um, and so it is the story of really Saul and the, the origins of, of David. And you're probably familiar with David. Uh, as a kid, maybe you learned the story of Goliath and how the young shepherd boy who could kill lions and bears with a sling um, came to bring lunch to his brothers who were in the army and you have Goliath, this 10-foot monster guy out there going, I can kill all of you if I want, and who's going to fight me? And everyone's scared, and no one wants to go out there. And David's like, who's going to speak about my God like that? He's like, I'll go fight him. And he's like, this kid has like, you know, they try to put armor on him. He's like, I don't need armor, it's too big. And he grabs a couple stones, and he kills this giant with a rock. And everyone's like, oh my gosh, like this kid is blessed by the Lord. And so he becomes part of Saul's army, grows up, uh, in Saul's army and becomes very successful as a warrior in Saul's army. Saul appreciates him, loves him at first very much, gives him one of his daughters to, to marry, and by the grace of God, he becomes very successful in the battlefield, so much so that the people of Israel are incredibly enamored with David, even more than Saul. They'll sing songs as they come back from battle and Saul's, you know, doing his kingly thing. And they're like, oh, Saul has slain thousands. And then David comes up like, but David has slain ten thousands. And they're like, Saul's listening to like, wait, what? Wait, I only got thousands? You got ten thousand? Wait a second. This is like not good because now they're all fancying after David. And David, very humble guy, not thinking about it, like, loves Saul. He thinks Saul's great. Loves the kingdom. Loves God. And yet, he becomes um, a threat to Saul. Saul views him as a threat. And Saul begins to uh, feel insecure with him and feeling suspicious of him. And so eventually, uh, over a series of events, Saul is rejected by God as king. And David is secretly anointed uh, as king, but he's not on the throne. And Saul is still on the throne as the anointed David is really still working under him. And after a bit of time, Saul wants to and desires to kill David. He feels so threatened by him, he wants to, to get rid of him. David doesn't know this immediately, um, and he has no desires to usurp the throne because he trusts God. He's like, you know what? I don't have to force my hand. Uh, God's got this under control. Uh, he'll put me on the throne when he wants, and that is God's chosen man, Saul, and who am I to remove him or to try to do anything? And so 
that goes by after a time until eventually Saul plans to kill David. And David is told, and David flees. And he eventually flees just south of Jerusalem to a city, and he is by himself. He has really no really resources and stuff. And he goes to the priests uh, in this place, and uh, it's a, a I believe the city's called Nob. And um, he basically lies. His way is like, I'm on a secret mission for Saul. And they're like, really? Why are you by yourself? He's like, no, I can't tell you. It's a secret. And he like uh, does all these things, eventually gets all the priests, all their kids, all their animals killed because he lies. And someone sees him there. And so that indicates the, the level of anger and rage that Saul has at David. And he will, do, he will stop at no expense, even killing the priests of God, to get David. So David's like, i got to get out of here. So he flees to a place where he feels like Saul would never follow him, which he goes into the land of the Philistines, which is their enemy. And he um, is, rumor is that David, the great warrior that's killed thousands of Philistines, is, is around, and they go and grab him. And they bring him before uh, the Philistine king. I believe his name is Akish, but he has a formal name of Abimelech, which is kind of like Pharaoh. And they bring him before, and they're like, oh, so you're David. And David decides, well, how am I going to get out of this? I know, I'll fake that I'm a total nut job. And so he pretends he's insane. And he starts scratching the walls and like drooling on himself. Like, hey, hey, hey. And they're like, this ain't the David we remember. And they're like, get this nut job madman out of here. And so they actually force him out of their country. And so David, now think about this, David can't stay in his own country because his own king whom he loves and serves, wants to kill him. He goes to try and hide out in the place of his enemy. They want to kill him, and so he goes and he hides in a cave. I don't know exactly what he's feeling at that moment. Probably pretty lonely. Probably uncertain, like, what am I supposed to do? I can't go home. I can't go away. I'm in a cave. People find out he's in this cave, and his family come to be with him. And I think it's at this point that he writes this psalm. We're not sure exactly. It's some point after his escape from Gath is where the Philistine king was. Um, and I think it was likely in this cave. His parents and his family come to be with him. Um, and then it says in 1 Samuel 22 that others came. It says that everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, everyone who was bitter in soul, which means discontent, gathered to him. Oh, what a fun bunch of people to be around, right? So you imagine David, who has done everything right. He's done everything the Lord taught him. He's been anointed king. Sitting in this cave, and all these guys who are in debt, angry, life is unfair, I'm bitter. This is, they all gather, and what is the temptation in that moment to do? To wallow in their mutual discontent. That's right. This stinks. Where's God? This is unfair. And you can imagine, if, if he, David is human, and in his story we know that he is, we know that he must have struggled with that. With the temptation to kind of just get bitter along with everyone else who thought life is unfair. So you imagine David sitting as king over bitter, 
unwanted men. But then David takes what are the failures of society, the broken, the marginalized, and he is going to end up turning them into warriors. And you go, how did he do that? And I think he started with this song. Half the song, the first ten verses, is a teaching psalm. Half the psalm is a declaration and a meditation on what God has done. First ten verses or so. And then the last twelve verses are responses of how we're to live in regards of, or in response to what God has done. And what David's conclusion is, is that, and again, knowing he's in a cave, knowing he's alone, knowing these you know, worthless men come and hang out, knowing he's anointed king, can't go home, wants to kill him, done nothing wrong, done everything right, loves the God, knowing the enemy wants to kill him, he's sitting there and he teaches these men to fear the Lord at all times. To enjoy the Lord at all times. To trust the Lord at all times. And to walk in faith, not by sight, at all times. He begins in verse 1, a couple verses of chapter 34, telling them what he's going to do. He's not telling them what to do. He's telling them what he's going to do. And really what he's done. He says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. You can imagine what he's listening to, right? All these guys coming like, that guy over here. Yeah, my life's unfair. I don't know what God is. I'm here because, oh, well, you're here. oh yeah, let me tell you the story of what happened to me. What happened to me? You know, he's listening to all this. And what does he say? I'm going to bless the Lord at all times. And His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul will make its boast in the Lord. Now, why do you think he says that? I imagine some of the guys are saying, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go get mine. That's what I'm going to do. When I get my chance, you know, he's just listening. I'm going to make... He says, my soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. And let us exalt his name together. Again, makes sense now that we know all those people are with him. Now, we probably hear the word praise a lot. So much so, it probably has lost its meaning a little bit. But the expression of praise or bless, it's an expression of gratitude. It's really an act of worship. And when you praise, you ascribe value to someone or something, and it comes out in some way, typically from your mouth. The root word is connected with with noise. You make a noise of some kind. And typically today, when we talk about praise, we, we talk about music. It's hard to separate music and praise. As Christians, it seems that when we worship through song, that's the one place and only place that we feel like, well, that's where I praise to God. And what David is talking about is something very different. It's something outside of Sunday mornings. It's even maybe something outside of what corporate singing is. It is a continual act of the mouth. What am I doing? What am I saying? What is coming out of my mouth always at all times about the Lord? And the truth is, it's not that we don't praise things. We praise all kinds of things. In fact, the act of praise uh, arrives 
it comes out naturally in, in many different concept, or contexts, and it's usually kind of like a completion of joy. That's what C.S. Lewis called it. I really liked it. He said that praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. And we know that. We know that anytime we, we watch something or, or see something amazing, you take something like a football game, right? And, and when you're watching uh, an amazing play, you see you know, Tyler Lockett running, and I didn't watch it today because the power's out, but I imagine this is what happened as others were watching it who had power. I mean, those in Mill Creek had power, but Lake Stevens, we didn't have power. But I imagine what happens is when you see that, this is what doesn't happen, right? you got a group of guys around, and they go, that was really a great run, guys. Did you see how he ran past the defense? I, I felt that was very technically well executed. Uh, it was an enjoyable play to watch. Did you? I enjoyed it. I did as well. Right? No. What happens is you go, yeah, high five, woo, <laughs> yeah, whoa. You're not thinking about praising. It just comes out naturally. It's the expression of joy. You see something amazing, and you go, yeah. It doesn't have to be sports. It could be many things, but we praise all kinds of things, and we don't think about, okay, guys, ready? I'm going to praise now. Here we go. Then we praise. That's not how it happens. Same thing happens when you see a, a, something beautiful, a sunset or something like that. You don't look at the sunset and go, hmm. Notice how that orange mixes nicely into the pink. It makes a beautiful spectrum of colors that can be greatly appreciated right now. Like, no. You look at it and you go, oh, that's just beautiful. It is the completion of our joy. It is the natural consummation of what is already happening in us. And so, in David saying, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will praise the Lord. I will worship the Lord. He's saying that I will enjoy Him at all times. C.S. Lewis said that actually in God commanding us to glorify Him or worship Him, He's inviting us to enjoy Him. So David, in the midst of a dark cave, everything is going wrong. He says, I'm going to choose to enjoy God. I'm going to praise God with my mouth. I'm going to declare things about Him that are true. I think the reason why he does that, just as a sidebar real quick, is that if you don't do that, you end up listening to all of the noise and the praise of the world. I don't mean praising you. I mean the world is full of so much noise that it's full of so much lies and false truth about God or about humanity. And when you're not listening or speaking so loud to overwhelm that sound, you are overwhelmed by it. And sitting in the cave, listening to the voices of men, probably focusing on themselves, is probably rather overwhelming if he doesn't start to speak. But he also says he's going to praise the Lord continually, and I think the idea of ceaseless praise and ceaseless enjoyment sounds probably pretty impossible, especially for those of us who are in the middle of a garbage-like existence in a cave in life. Actively praising God when someone tells you, like, you know, just praise God. You just want to throw up. Don't you? Like, really? I just want to punch you right now because that is not what I feel like doing. Because we, we feel like there has to be, I have to have emotion attached to that necessarily when maybe that actually creates emotion. 
But in those darkest moments, I think praise is probably the last thing from our minds. And so what happens is that we start, instead of speaking about God, we actually start speaking um, about our situation. In fact, it's not that we aren't enjoying being in a cave. It's that we're talking so much about the cave, so much about the hardship, so much about the darkness, that we're actually starting to ascribe value and perhaps even praise the situation we're in more than God. When I dwell on my circumstances that are always changing as opposed to God who is never changing, I do the very opposite of what David calls, us, David calls us to do here. I begin to boast in my own abilities in order to save myself and get me out of the situation. See, praising God is not about ignoring the pain and pretending it's not there. David doesn't do that. It's about directing it. And if you ever read Psalm 46, which is another amazing psalm, I read that often when I go to hospitals and people are really suffering. It talks about the Lord bringing desolations. And at the end of the psalm it says, Be still and know I'm God. It doesn't say, Be still. I'll get you out of this. Be still. Things are going to change. It says, Be still and know. Be still and know who I am. Dwell and praise who I am, which never changes, never ever changes, when everything else is changing around you. Finally, David invites his men not just to pray at all, praise at all times, not to just praise continually, but to praise together. He invites them in. He says, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt His name together. I think there's a beauty and communal praise. I mean, that could be two people. Praising God communally is, is, um, is powerful. And I'll, I'll give you a couple examples of that in a second. But instead of dwelling on the emotion of the difficult situation they're in together, instead of commiserating together, he tries to uh, invite them to praise God together with one voice. And there's such a beauty in that. When we first planted Damascus Road Church, about two months prior to that, people, uh, some wonderful people who were very wealthy said, we want to send you this church planning conference in Europe. Okay. So I went, and it was awesome, and it was really enjoyable. I went with Aaron Ortiz, which is a whole story that was amazing and fun experience, you can imagine. And we're sitting there one time in a conference area place. We're all singing songs. And I had learned about different people, whatever, and and we're singing this one song about, um, it's that song that goes like, he gives and takes away. I don't know if you know that's like that, it's a popular Christian song. Um, gives and takes away. And so um, I'm singing that. And at this, in this moment, when I was singing in my life, I didn't feel like anything would be taken away. I feel like I was getting a lot. So I'm like, yeah, gives and takes away, like whatever. Like it's going through the motions. But there's a girl in front of me who uh, was weeping singing as loud as she could. She had a couple little kids with her. And I'm like, I, I leaned over because uh, my friend who's part of the ministry, I said, why, why are you crying? She's like, oh, her husband, um, young guy, 
died tragically three months ago. And I was like, oh. But in that moment, that song took on an entirely different meaning for me. And I began to praise God as I saw a heart in this woman who was praising God, going, there's no way that that heart and that voice can be explained except for a miracle of God. To give her the joy. She's weeping, but she was praising God in the midst of what amounted to a dark cave. Three little kids. I don't think we understand the, um, or maybe value enough, the beauty of communal praise. There'll be a time, like, when you actually begin to function as a family in a community, you know each other's stories. And you see, which I saw at Damascus Road when Debbie Henry, um, she was the first woman to kind of experience, well, it was the first tragedy we had as a church, and she had cancer, and she'd be one of the people raising her hands, praising God. And maybe 80% of the people didn't know that she had cancer, but I knew. Terminal. And she was lifting her hands and praising God and serving people. I'm like, there's a beauty in communal praise. And that at times it's an encouragement to you, and at times you're an encouragement to others, but to see people in the midst of their cave saying, I'm going to praise God. Yeah, this is terrible. I wish this situation was not the way it was. I wish I was not in the darkness. I wish I could go home. I wish I could do this, but I can't. And I'm going to praise God regardless. I'm going to praise Him continually. Would you praise Him with me? And we are moved together. That's how God built the church. So that the body could heal itself and feed itself as it praises together. Well, David continues... And he begins um, to meditate on uh, really the promises that come with your decision to praise. Uh, and what I mean is that we often think that, like, I don't feel like praising. And what we're all searching for is, is I think, the joy that praise represents. And we wrongly believe that that joy precedes praise. Oftentimes, that praise creates joy. And if you would make a decision to proclaim what is true and not believe what is false, or turn your eyes towards God and not and take them off of what is the cave, you would experience a renewed joy, if not just a deep sense of peace that God has you. And so he dwells on some of the promises, and he does so in, in sharing his experience. He's like, let me tell you what happened, guys. He doesn't say it flat out, but he's like, I'm anointed king. And some of you know that. And I'm in a cave. And I battled my heart out for Israel and my king whom I loved and served faithfully wants to kill me. So if someone has something to complain about, I do. I have this picture in my Bible. If you get Voice of the Martyrs, you'd see this. Um, this young boy, I put it in my Bible to remind myself. I just remembered it. I didn't talk about this for a service. This boy um, is a Christian. Uh, prior to this picture, I think a couple months, maybe six months prior to this, um, he had his eye gouged out. Um, he had his genitals cut off. Um, and he had his arm butchered with a machete because he was a Christian. He watched his father die, I believe, uh, and part of, I think other members of his family as well. 
and he's standing there with a bag that he pees in. And what is he doing? Smiling. And his prayers requests were for things like, "Let my, would you please uh, have uh, them pray for me that my faith may increase? In fact, he's smiling is an encouragement to me. Who am I to complain? And this is what David does. He's like, if anyone has reason to complain, if anybody has reason to complain, I'll give this guy a pass. And yet he praises. David says, I sought the Lord and He answered me. and He delivered me from all my fears. And those who look to Him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. The poor man cried and the Lord heard him. Ashley, verse 6. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. David's praise is rooted in what God had already done in response to his cry for help. David recalls his own situation. He says, look, this poor man, like, like you're like anointed king. Like This poor man who's got nothing right now, I'm in a cave with nobody. I cried out. And the Lord met me there. I think oftentimes we put so much value in the situation we're in that it reveals what we truly fear and it's not God. What we talk about most, the fact that I have no money, the fact that my kids are not behaving, the fact that I can't get ahead in XYZ, the fact that I have this situation, that which we talk about most, I believe, is what we fear most. And David says very clearly, um, he had fears. He was in that place. And he was delivered from it. You go, what fears did he have? The same ones we do. Fear of our enemy, fear of failure, fear of the unknown, fear of pain, fear of what seemed like impossible circumstances, fear of dissatisfaction, fear of the approval of men, any number of fears. And what does he say? I sought the Lord and he delivered me. Okay, what is it? I prayed. And he delivered me from all of my fears, and he's still in the cave. What does that reveal? It shows this. He was through prayer delivered from his fears before he was delivered from his really yucky situation. And guess what? He can now praise in that yucky situation because there's no fear. You see, the reality is everyone is really looking for one thing, and that's contentment. That's peace with God. And the cave doesn't matter if you have that. But we always get so focused on getting out of the situation, out of the badness away from it, that we don't even begin to praise, or we only praise God when we're out of it. He says, you begin to praise, you begin to pray, you seek me, I'll give you peace. I may not take you out of the cave. Not yet. But he sings and he says, those who do this, those who seek the Lord, become radiant. They glow like those 
My daughter has this weird doll. You like press the belly, you know, it's like the whole face glows. You're like, what kind of baby does that? Like that, that's freaky. But what you really think about, what I think about, is the face of Moses. The face of Moses used to glow when he went into the presence of the Lord. People go, dude, you're like glowing. Because he had been with the Lord. Gregory Beale, who is a professor, wrote this, what people revere or fear or look to most, they resemble. Either ruin or restoration. And as we begin to praise in the midst of what are cave-like experiences, and pray in the midst of cave-like experiences, we will begin to look, if you will, like the Lord. See, the truth is, when we're in these situations, we cry out to something. We're either going to cry out to the Creator or we're going to cry out to or about creation. And those who cry out to the true God are slowly transformed into the image of His Son, Jesus. That's what Colossians 3.18 says. That we are transformed more and more to look like Him. To think like Him. To be at peace like Him. And the truth is, those who cry out to man-made idols, man-made saviors, Whatever it is they hope will save them, whether money, a person, power, whatever. Those false gods, the ones they're hoping will alleviate their fears, they will actually become like them. They'll look like them. Psalm 115 says it this way, The idols, silver and gold, are the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see, they have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell, Hands that do not feel, feet that do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. And those who make them become like them, and so do all who trust in them. See, those who fear creation more than they fear the Creator are not free or radiant. In fact, they're very dark, and they're often very paralyzed. They don't speak. They don't know what to say. They can't see clearly. They can't hear clearly. They can't feel clearly. They don't walk. They sit and they don't make a sound other than groaning for the distress that they're in, hoping they can get out. But that's not so for those who seek the Lord. He promises to make us free. He promises to make us radiant. He promises that that happens when we praise or after we praise, not before it often. But then he goes even further And he invites his men to do more than just go through the motions because that can happen. He wants them to experience the love of the one true God. And he says, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's someone who's tasted. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. He he challenges his men to say, let me tell you what I've experienced. And he doesn't just say, look. right? Imagine this, this plate of foods put before you. You just kind of look at it. That is nice. Maybe you touch it. Ooh. Oh, that steak bounces like that. Nicely, rarely cooked. Beautiful. Blood squirts out. Oh, beautiful. Right? Smell it. Yeah. That smells good. All right, what are we doing next? Like, you didn't experience the meal. He says, taste. Taste is a, is a different 
uh, a sense than, than any others. In fact, taste involves all the senses. You, you're, you're required in many times as you, as you see the food and, and you feel the food and you smell the food, then it all comes together with tasting of the food, with indulging in the food. Like Some people just like look at God at a distance or talk about God or even listen to sermons. But do they ever taste of God? Do they indulge in Do they feast on God and let it go inside of them so it changes them from the inside out? He's saying, taste and see that He is good. I know it may not look good. It may not even sound good, but if you taste, oh my gosh, it tastes so good. And it will change you in two ways. First, it will nourish you, right? If we just had to eat for nourishment, that would not be fun. I, I, I'm eating because I have to. I will die if I don't eat. Like if that's all eating was, then we would like take little, you know, square tabs and just eat those, and that's it. But we don't. We like food is an experience for us. People put pictures of food on Facebook, right? Look what I'm eating that you're not. I, I always talk about that because it's irritating. Because my food never looks like what people are eating. Because part of food is pleasure. Part of eating is pleasure. Like We feast on the Lord for nourishment. And if you don't feast on the Lord, spiritually speaking, you die. But if it's only duty, then you've lost sight of the Gospel. We feast for joy. We feast for pleasure. We feast because it tastes good, and it is good, and it looks good. For me, the worst food in the world is cooked carrots. Horrible. Cooked carrots are pure hell for me, okay? I like carrots, but when you cook them, evil comes out. There's just something wrong with cooked carrots. Now, mind you, if I come to your house and you put cooked carrots, I'll eat them. That's how I was raised. I'll eat them. And y'all be like, it is wonderful. I love these cooked carrots. But whatever it is that you don't like, I wonder sometimes as you view your, your relationship with God, your faith with God, your praise with God, like do you view it as, as feasting on that prime rib you love or that chicken fettuccine or, or, or Caesar salad or, or whatever it is, your, your vegan, organic, whatever wonderful thing? That pile of chocolate, like, oh yeah. Or is it cooked carrot? Is it, is it just like, I, I, I'm going to pray. I'll eat my vegetables. I'll do it. It ain't taste good, but I'll do it. Right? Is that what it's, I feel like that's what people's relationship with the Lord is like. And when you call them to read their Bible, it's like, really, i got to eat my vegetables? Like, I'm, I'm, in, I'm inviting you to a feast. I'm saying dig in. He says, oh, taste. Then he says, oh, fear the Lord, you His saints. For those who fear Him have no lack. So the young lions suffer want and hunger, like the lions. But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He says, oh, taste. Oh, fear. And the fear of the Lord, Mark did a good job of explaining it. It's not the same as being scared of the Lord. But it's a reverence, respect, and understanding of who God is in light of who you are. 
And how do you know if someone, like, how do I know if I fear the Lord? Is it because I'm moral? Is it because I, I'm, I'm religious and I do these certain you know, traditions? Is it because I serve other people? Is that how I know I fear the Lord? Here's, if you just take this psalm, what David said, it seems like it looks like someone who lives in continual praise. And someone who constantly feasts on the goodness of the Lord. And someone who genuinely content because they're full. That's what I want. That's what I want. And the last thing that he says, and he gets really practical, he doesn't leave him the suspense and go, it's kind of like when a pastor goes like, you know what, you need to spiritually lead your home. You're like, okay, how do I do that? Or, you need to feel the Lord, guys. See you later. He doesn't do that. I mean, he does say, you need to fear the Lord. But then he goes further and tells him specifically, he says, come, oh children, listen to me. I'm going to teach you to fear the Lord. So what man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may say good? Like, who's out there that wants life? Who's out there that, that wants true contentment, true joy? I'll show you. And then he gets really practical. Here's how you fear the Lord when you find yourself in a cave. First thing he says, it's only three, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The first thing David says when he addresses or teaches men how to fear the Lord is to watch their mouths. Now when I first read this, I thought, oh, just don't lie to people. Be Make sure you tell the truth always and you don't, you know, be false witness to anybody. But that's really not what he's talking about. He is talking about speaking truth. But if you think about it, when things don't go your way, when things just get bad, when you get disillusioned, when you find yourself, you're in a dark cave in a situation like this is not where I foresaw this going. There's a temptation that happens. And it has to do with our mouth. Right? What did Jesus say? What comes out of the mouth? Connected to the heart. And when things are in that situation, we are tempted to speak lies about God and about ourselves. We're tempted to speak deceit about God. We begin to declare, oh, He's not good. He must not be loving. Or He must not be in control. Because this situation just got way too bad. There's no way he would lead me into this situation. I know he led Jesus into the wilderness, but that was different. I know King David was in a cave, but I'm not supposed to be in a cave. And those are the lies that speak about us. I deserve better than this. I'm entitled to this. This is not the way I saw it going. What typically happens or begins when speaking lies about your situation or evil results in doing some kind of other evil to get out of it rather than trusting God, which is what David does. He instructs his men to do good, to seek peace, and to work at keeping the praise of God, the declaration of truths about God for others to hear instead of crying out about the horrible situation you're in. And that is because when you begin to declare, as I said, oftentimes praise precedes the joy and the contentment. We're waiting for the joy and the contentment so that we can praise. What if? 
a volitional decision to start praising who God is. God is good. God is gracious. God is generous. God is great. How would that affect our emotion or joy in the moments where things are not good? And they're not great. But God is great. God is a Father who loves me, who always gives me His best. I'm going to praise that. He purposes all things for good for those who believe. I'm going to praise that. I'm going to believe that. He who sacrificed His Son for me, how much more will He give any other good thing to me? He didn't withhold anything from me. I'm going to praise that. How would that change our whole perspective of the cave? Stop and get our mind off of getting out of the cave and get with the Lord in His presence by speaking truth about Him. The second thing he says, verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and His ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from earth. Verse 17, when the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of the troubles. First David helps people praise in the cave and then he teaches them to pray. And I'm the last person to be telling you that. I personally believe I don't pray enough and diligently enough. But we should be encouraged if you're like me. And I'm sure you're all prayer warriors out there. That the Lord hears our cry. The Lord of the universe hears our whimper, if that's all it is. He is waiting to hear it like a father listening to his kids play in the backyard and if there's something that happens, he is rushing to help and love and to act and to be there. The Lord of the universe is listening to us. And I have wondered this, and maybe this is a totally theologically bad question, but I don't care. Sometimes I wonder if he doesn't act until we cry out to him. There are certainly times he acts regardless if we cry or not, but he delivers those who cry out for help. Because a cry out for help is a tapping out. I can't do it. I can't do it. I wonder sometimes, like men that don't cry, if we simply don't cry because you really think you're strong. And Christianity is not for the strong. It's for those who will be willing enough to cry and say they're weak. It's been said that people don't pray because they don't believe God hears us or that it actually does anything. I'll just say this. I was moved by uh, Kathy Keller, Tim Keller's wife, and what she said about prayer. Tim Keller, um, he's a great teacher, and he admitted his struggle with prayer. He came face-to-face with it during September 11th. um, He's in New York and the whole terrorist tragedy that happened, and his wife, Either he or his wife, I think his wife got sick at the same time with a bad disease. And so he realized in that moment that he was not prayerful. And he began a study of prayer. And he was, his wife, and typically wives are better prayer than husbands. Um, his wife was like, let me help you. And she said, here's how a perspective on prayer. Uh, imagine that you have a terminal disease and you're going to die. But there's a pill you can take. And as long as you take that pill every day, you will live. How committed would you be to taking that pill? 
And until we see ourselves as that dependent upon the Lord, we won't pray. Until we see prayer as, as that connection with His presence that's not just, you should pray. I have to pray. I need to pray. We will not pray more. David reminds people to pray in the cave. And if you ever look at Paul's prayers in the Bible, they're never about getting out of the cave. They're always about knowing the Lord, knowing the love of the Lord, praying that we will understand the grace that is in Him, praying that we'll understand how much He has pursued us and loves us. Not, let me get out of here. How do I? No. Sometimes God leaves us in the cave long enough till we will pray like that. Last thing, tells him to praise in the cave, pray in the cave, and the last thing is calls him to preach. I think David doesn't want us to be romantic about our faith and pretend like it's not difficult. We can easily end up disillusioned when things don't go expected, thinking, well, I'm a Christian God. I thought you were there like my refuge and my protector, my leader, all these things. And We should keep note of the last couple of verses. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. But verse 19, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones and not one of them is broken. Unlike, verse 21, affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. If we are being conformed more and more to Jesus, living a life more and more like Him, we are going to face more and more affliction. That's what a life like Jesus entails. We live in a sinful world. We continue to have a broken flesh, even if our spirit is renewed within it. We are surrounded by broken, sinful people. And though in Christ we are right with God, being right with God does not preclude us from hardship and suffering. David is the anointed king in a cave. But I do believe, as David has been teaching, that in Christ, the fear of God, who God is, what He has done, what He is doing, will help us endure any level of suffering more than any pill or book or relationship would ever do. And we have to preach this... We don't preach it to others. You begin by preaching to yourself. And sometimes that's preaching against the lies you tell yourself. I'm no good. You're forgiven. God loves you. I'm pretty awesome. Do you know how broken you were? Jesus had to die for you. You preached yourself the Gospel over and over and over again. You're not in the cave because God hates you. Right? Don't ever believe that. God has you in the cave and He's shaping you And just as He pushed Jesus in the wilderness, He wants us to be with Him, close to Him. And sometimes a cave is required to do that. The Lord redeems the life of His servants, verse 22. None of those who take refuge in Him will be condemned. If you take refuge in the Lord, you will be redeemed. We don't fear God because we're scared of Him. Pray that He's going to reject us if we don't behave. We fear God and we worship Him 
because we know we already did reject Him. Because we know that He knows how sinful we are, and yet He loves us. Yet He sent His Son to die for us. So we don't serve Him so that He will redeem us. We serve Him because we have been redeemed freely in Christ. We don't praise Him so that He won't condemn us. We praise Him because we have tasted of the Lord and He is good and He has put a new song into our mouth and we couldn't hold it back if we tried. Be like, praise Jesus! That's what it should be like. And so I invite you as I preach to myself, if you find yourself in a cave, and not every cave is built the same, not every cave is as dark as another, but would, as David calls, would you praise God with me and declare, despite being in that cave in a situation you never expected, that God is good? And would you pray with me and declare and believe that, that God is generous, that God is gracious, that God is a Father who always gives me His best? And would you preach with me would you preach to yourself? And would you preach to your friends and your family that despite the cave that you're in, would you let them see, I believe God is great. But you, man, but your life stinks right now. I know, but God is great. And should He wish to free me from this cave, He will. But if not, I will praise Him continually at all times, all the same. Would you do that with me? And we take communion to remind us of our reason to praise that our situation in life has been rescued. That Jesus has done everything that, that is to be done. And we have reason to praise because not only are we made new in this life, we have an eternal life waiting for us. And so I invite you as we sing these next songs to sing as if you believe it. And if you find yourself in a cave, know that other people probably know that. And you're preaching a sermon to them as you lift your hands in praise as well. Let's pray and let's sing together. Holy Father, we come before You knowing that You are holy and You are loving. We thank You. We thank You for all that You have done that we could not do ourselves. We thank You that we have the freedom to declare that we are weak and that You are strong. That we are the poor man who is broken. And You are the One who promises and has delivered us from all our fears. So we do not live in fear from You, Lord. We, we fear You and revere You knowing what You have done in light of who we are. We thank You for loving us. And we pray that You will help us to praise You in the midst of a cave. That You will help us to seek Your face, Father, for those who struggle with prayer, for those who view it as just some mechanical thing that doesn't have meaning, would you transform the perspective to see that it is in coming into your presence. It is communion with you and it is being changed by you. That prayer is not so much to move you as it is to change us. And then would you help us to preach and to believe the Gospel that you sent your Son to die for us. And that 
through His resurrection, You give us new life. And that our hope is not found in this world, but it is real and is waiting for us. Help us to live out what David teaches. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.